Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. My go-to radio station was B100. I had been an AM guy on the Mighty 690, but a Christmas gift clock radio with FM dial opened me up to reliable nighttime signals and the likes of Culture Club, Prince, and Pat Benatar, and I was hooked. My allegiance to B100 remains steady across adolescent summers and many Sunday morning Top 40 countdowns. By the time I moved away for college and discovered K-Rock, the sonic experience of my coming of age was encased in audio resin that renders me younger than I am by half whenever I hear Beat It in public. Another mainstay of the San Diego radio scene is and was 91X. The station's alternative format was preferred by older kids whom I admired but felt intimidated by throughout middle school and high school. It was also the soundtrack I associated with potheads, goths, dropouts, queer kids, and possibly more discerning radio listeners that couldn't be persuaded of the layers of meaning I felt were hidden inside anything by Huey Lewis and the news. Sidebar. One of the really hilarious things in Brett Easton Ellis's brilliant novel, American Psycho, from 1991, is the way his eponymous anti-hero breaks up the mundanities of daily habit, albeit with occasional murder, with brilliant exegeses on Phil Collins, Whitney Houston, and Huey Lewis in the news. Because I've long enjoyed all three artists, while also recognizing their collective limitations, Ellis's remarks have the force of a ball-peen hammer when so much of cultural criticism then and now is either tweetscape scalpel or cable news sledge. But first, a note on radio music from your present writer, recalling himself from the mid-1980s. Here, you should imagine an overweight kid with pale skin, glasses, and a noticeable malocclusion. Know that I was on a youth swim team to keep busy and lose weight, and the club was co-educational. This means that I regularly exercised in a speedo with older girls I thought were beautiful, alongside properly muscled older boys that I knew were handsome, and they all felt at home in the 91 exosphere that elevated the cure and Depeche Mode over the kinds of power ballads I was secretly singing at home. One 91X band I remember them talking about a lot was Talking Heads. Like other musical standouts, whether trafficking in performative ingenuity, La Via Strangiado and Exercise and Self-Indulgence by Rush, Earnest Feeling, Sunday Bloody Sunday by U2, Futuristic Invention, Rocket by Herbie Hancock, or Evolving Superstardom, anything by Lionel Richie or Elton John, I thought Talking Heads music was weird. Take Psycho Killer. It features an assaultive title word, psycho, spoken French, qu'est-ce que c'est, roughly, what is it that is, a nonsense refrain, fa 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 far better, and a propulsive beat built on rhythm guitar and a hammering drum kit. The song doesn't traffic in synth pop, which was then my standard of quality due to a reliance on then newly ubiquitous synthesizers instead of skilled instrumental performance, and this much despite my years of piano lessons. To me, lead singer David Byrne was an Englishman working in the American idiom and failing, rather than being a Scotland-born Canadian immigrant to America working in the self-made Byrneian idiom and succeeding wildly. The group of plain-looking white people he headlined, including Chris France, Jerry Harrison, and Tina Weymouth, avoided the trappings of Top 40 songwriting, although their work occasionally crept up into the Top 40 scene, and I didn't have a way to categorize or list or explain what they were doing, save for roping it off as unpleasant before moving on to hair bands like Europe and Poison. Too much the naive purist, 
I wasn't yet capable of imagining how art forms mutually fluoresce to excite people. It was my limit to think of musical groups as a mixture of different instruments played by different people competing with one another along melody, harmony, and rhythm. If that combination was performed well and properly engineered, the result could be brilliant like every breath you take by the police. If it wasn't, you had True by Spandau Ballet. Either way, you passed time. I was also unable to consider how imagery, costume dance, history, mythology, symbol, and intertext, among other considerations, enhances a work of creative expression, turning it into something extraordinary when all registers of expression and meaning are activated. The bottom line is that Talking Heads made cerebral music with R&B roots, and they succeeded in this thread-worn path of racial and cultural appropriation because they did a good job mixing influences in a series of song-based messages commenting on the post-war moment. One example is Burning Down the House, which peaked at number 9 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. The song begins, Watch out, you might get what you're after. Boom, babies, strange but not a stranger. I'm an ordinary guy burning down the house. We hear a simple warning, watch out, that leads to a note of caution, you might get what you're after, before landing on a false note of personal insignificance, I'm an ordinary guy. These talking heads recognize how they are boom babies, and they yearn for things, status, and accomplishments, which is why they're projecting criticism of their generation onto a catchy song to burn down the house, read America. As a baloney eating, he-Man and the Masters of the Universe watching, upper-middle-class white boy from Southern California, I found it impossible to imagine any group of people with similar life experiences to either of my parents who were interested in disrupting the cultural template of success that I was being raised to worship. I couldn't accept it, and I changed channels away from stations that played Talking Heads songs, including my beloved B100, and in this way I avoided seeing the release of the Talking Heads 1984 concert film, Stop Making Sense directed by Jonathan Demme, despite having heard of the movie through Roger Ebert on the telecast at the movies. Sidebar. Opening October 19, 1984, Stop Making Sense trailed behind top earner Teachers by Arthur Hiller at number 21 at the box office, according to Box Office Mojo. Among other movies in theaters that weekend, I'd already seen number 5, All of Me, number 8, A Soldier's Story, number 9, Ghostbusters, and number 14, The Karate Kid, and I desperately wanted to see number 12, Purple Rain, but I wasn't allowed to because of its R rating. Soon afterward, I was taken to see eventual Oscar winner Amadeus, then in its fifth week of release, and number 16 at the box office. Stop Making Sense's promotional poster featured Byrne from chin to knee with his right hand in a moving crane pose while his left hand is hidden behind his single-breasted, three-button beige suit. It's clearly a story detail caught in media res, but for what purpose I couldn't answer. More narrowly focused on my tween self, the image shows Byrne being comfortable as a cartoon spectacle, the kind of negative potential I was trying to erase from the fat body into which my self-assurance had already been lost. Thus, I busily swam laps five days a week. Now, a note on movie music from your present writer recalling himself from the late 2010s. Here you have to imagine a dad with pale skin, glasses, and wrinkles. Now that I've lost many of the guidelines I grew up thinking were fixed poles to orient my one true north. Instead, I can enjoy things I don't understand, which are not experiences I have to pack into the right category or list, or explain as a way to keep control of the world where I live. 
The problem of my middle age is living in the present while reviewing the past since much of my life has already happened. As my curiosity heads forward, I often spelunk into memory holes, seeking to unravel knots of misunderstanding from my youth. So, I recently forced a group of college students enrolled in one of my movie classes to endure titles from the 1980s, including Stop Making Sense. The other titles in the lineup, in screened order, were Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Hollywood Shuffle, Cinema Paradiso, Grave of the Fireflies, Yentl, Platoon, Raging Bull, Quest for Fire, Conan the Barbarian, Blade Runner, Saint Soleil, To Live and Die in L.A., The Empire Strikes Back, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Desert Hearts. While I offered lots of introductory reasons to experience Stop Making Sense as a productive site for doing the work of film studies and taking pleasure from the effort, i.e., it's a documentary with a then-experimental, multi-track sound recording system, and it showcases non-white musician entertainers hired to exoticize the talking head's palette and sound, which was and is a trend among white cultural producers, etc. The fact is, I wanted to see if I'd missed something important from 1984 because I was too caught up in being such a square, dorky kid with glasses, and I was. Filming Stop Making Sense required four shows at the Pantages Theater in Los Angeles. Each evening's show was recorded with different production goals to let Demi's camera crew and sound technicians focus on different elements, from establishing shots to close-ups and cutaway details to musicians in solo, and in this way build a set of choices for how to create a sense of liveness for movie audiences. To me, Demi's crew succeeded wildly because Stop Making Sense is a totally coherent expression of the talking heads at career peak, as well as being an interesting time capsule of December 1983. The movie's story begins with Byrne walking onto a bare stage with a portable tape player and acoustic guitar. He starts into Psycho Killer, accompanied by a drum machine, and he's gradually augmented through the flow of songs from heaven through slippery people, by other voices, instruments, and players, until the talking heads perform Burning Down the House fully on stage with backup musicians Steve Scales, Lynn Mabry, Edna Holt, Alex Ware, and Bernie Worrell, not to overlook the host of Grips and Roadies who we see wheeling platforms on and off stage while wearing black shirts and sneakers. Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt draw particular attention because they pull focus easily, and it's hard to avoid noticing their visual spectacle as brawless black women offering harmony to a white lead singer. For more on this history, see Morgan Neville's 20 Feet from Stardom from 2013 that features Mabry as one of many talking heads, pun intended, reflecting on the nature of background singing and the complicated way that individual masculine voices, usually white, are amplified and made desirable by communal feminine voices, usually brown and black. Certain musical numbers feature video screen interpretations of the music rear-projected behind France's high-platform drum kit, while other numbers switch mood with tempo changes marked by dim or bright lights, and the interplay of musicians favors different groupings and affection as the mood suits the band. There is a lot of smiling that seems to mirror the fun of playing to an excitable crowd, which we see and hear through a feature-length movie that moves smoothly and quickly. The showstopper for me is... This must be the place, Naive Melody.
This section operates like a scene of intimacy in a fictional love story. The protagonists, in this case a group of musicians, assemble at the front of the stage. Lights darken, emotions settle, and things grow calm for the bass line. Then a high-pitched synth lick joins in, teasing the song forward until Byrne begins singing. The band members sway in synchrony, and the emotional pressure builds. With a floor lamp to focus the stage and a video rear projection of changing images, talking heads make love to us, and the band pauses in their labors like nomads gathered around campfire to relax after exertions that literally feature jogging on stage. This must be the place, naive melody, speaks to me of the eventual melancholy I have known often as an adult, which concerns nostalgia for something warm and wonderful and the inevitability of passing time. What I knew as a boy in 1984 was simpler. I was outside the community of older swim team kids, and their pleasure in talking heads was formed by contact with something other than the reassuring formulas of Top 40 Radio. Where the split separating me from them was a divide between B100 and 91X, I now see the divide differently. It was more than just a disagreement about musical taste or norms governing how we are supposed to communicate with each other. It was and is also an acceptance of sadness born from the very heart of where I now know joy. And I interpret Stop Making Sense as a commentary about the centrifugal force of growing up, wanting to find a way forward, fighting against the centripetal force that sometimes returns us. Home is where I want to be, but I guess I'm already there. The song continues on. commentators have singled out Stop Making Sense as a great concert film, and every one of them is correct. My addition to the tribal view, having only just seen the movie in my 40s, is that I lost decades of opportunity to enjoy the only kind of church I have always been willing to turn to in the singularity we all know as life. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boobity-doo!